0: Hi hey everyone, welcome to My Sporting Mind. It's Charlie Webster here. I hope you're all doing okay. Thanks again for joining us as I speak to sports stars about mental health and well-being and to really try and make mental health an everyday conversation that we should all be having. I'm very delighted to say Harlequin's flanker and former England captain Chris Robshaw is joining me today.
1: Hello, how are you? Getting
0: better with my claps. Yeah, I'm good. How are yeah. you doing? How's everything been the last couple of months?
1: Uh, you know what, I've, I've been okay. I don't have kids, so we haven't had that kind of the homeschooling issues and making sure that's kind of going. And it's actually been one where I've been trying to use it to my advantage. I think normally when you're at the club or when you're playing, you're running around here, there and everywhere. And and even when in everyday life, I give myself tasks to do. I want to be busy the whole time and running around. And it's forced me just to take stock and almost recharge my batteries. So I feel fresh again. I feel good uh, mentally as well. Well, like everyone else, I had good days and bad days and it was trying to, trying to balance them all out.
0: Um, what we've been doing, Chris, on this part is basically going to speak to various different sports stars and going through some particular moments of their life and talking about mental health to try and break that stigma and to normalise it. And I think when people hear struggles of sports stars or that they've gone through the same emotions as everyone else, um, it definitely helps people relate. And with you, one one thing I wanted to go back to was actually your childhood, because I know that you were diagnosed with dyslexia. This is a particular interest for me because my brother has dyslexia and it's something that I know it's sometimes hard for him and he doesn't like not being able to do certain things. What's it been like for you in your journey? And have you had to adapt in terms of learning styles, um, especially with rugby?
1: Yeah, dyslexia in my life has has played a huge part um, as well. Unfortunately, my father passed when I was very young as well, about five years old. And as a kid, I was a stubborn. I was quite... Frustrated with a lot of things because I wasn't understanding in the classroom when my friends were were grasping things. And it was almost, I couldn't understand why I wasn't understanding. And I'd get frustrated and I'd get angry and it would just kind of spiral a little bit. But then rugby came along. And and for me, sport has always been, whether it's been football or playing other sports, has always been a huge part of my life. And for me in particular, rugby, it gave me that confidence. It gave me that escape from the classroom. It gave me that place I could get that confidence and then be like, you know what? I can go back in the classroom and try a little bit harder because I know I've got something else. And yeah, I'm so thankful for all the teachers and my mum and staff who who stuck with me, made me do the extra lessons at break times, which I hated at the time. And as a kid, and I speak to children now with dyslexia who are going through a similar thing where they see all their friends out there playing and all that and you have to stay in and do extra learning or, or spelling or reading or writing, whatever you struggle with. And I think at that time, you don't see the bigger picture. And I think it it doesn't suddenly change you don 't just go from suddenly struggling to reading ill in front of a thousand people and that, and that's fine because for me as a kid that was that was one of my biggest fears was you know when you'd all have to stand up and read a sentence and then you would sit down the next person and they would go around the room reading the book and that was one of my biggest fears and Now I go to dinners and read in front of five hundred people to a thousand people and if you had said to me in in that classroom that one day in... 20, 30 years' time, that you'll be doing that, I wouldn't have believed you. So when I, when I see dyslexia people, I just say stick with it. It's, it's not an easy path, but if you put the work in, it'll be so much more rewarding later on in life.
0: And what about to adults? You know, you speak to a lot of children. What about adults that struggle, maybe? You come to terms yeah, with it?
1: Yeah, yeah they do. You, you come to terms with it, I, I think. Um, I think for adults in particular, and it's, it's understanding what works for you and what doesn't work. And look, don't get me wrong, I still, when I present stuff, I don't really want to write stuff on the board in case I get words spelt wrong. Because in, in your head, you've still got that little insecurity and stuff where you don't want to look silly or whatever in front of the guys. I'd happily get up there and speak and talk for as long, but I don't want to be the one writing on the whiteboard. Um, so look, with, with me, there are still things like that. But but in saying so, you, you have to continue to challenge yourself. You can't always hide away from these things. And you've got to pick yourself outside your comfort zone to improve there gets to a point where you've reached a level, but unless you move forward, you're never going to improve anymore. And, and that's always something we try and do at the club, whether it's, whether it's going and training a different way or speaking to a, a, an ex-captain or an ex-player of a different sport where you can take something back, uh, pick people's brains and find out what works for you.
0: You mentioned the loss of your dad at an early age. Was it difficult or how difficult was it for you to understand that loss? Is that something that you looked back and and dealt with later in life? Do you think?
1: Yeah, it was it was tough. Like I said, I was, I was five years old when it happened. Unfortunately, he died of a heart attack. No previous illnesses or anything like that. Very out of the blue, and yeah, it was it was tragic for for my family and my mom and and everything. And it was it was a tough time, and I think it definitely made me almost more didn't want to show those emotions, didn't want to kind of let that out because I didn't understand it, and even to this day it. It drives my wife mad and my, my teammates and stuff because I'll be, I'll be quite straight-faced with a lot of things. And, yes, I'll, be, I'll have moments where I'll, I'll fluctuate massively, but generally I'm, I'm pretty pretty controlled with it.
0: Mm, I suppose that's a, a coping mechanism sometimes we develop from young kids, don't we, when we've had those kind of losses or trauma as children. I'm going to take you to a really nice moment. So 2012 Six Nations where you were appointed captain. Looking back now, what, what was it like? Can you describe to us maybe the emotions that you went through.
1: It was beyond anything I could ever imagine, but but also extremely <laughs> quite intimidating to suddenly be from... Because it was only my second cap, only my second time I would have played for my country. And then to go up to Murrayfield, the history, it's the oldest rivalry in rugby, uh, the Calcutta Cup. And yeah, there were a huge amount of nerves. There were some experienced guys, but we had a lot of guys who were in there for the first time, which probably made it a little bit easier on myself. But it was quite a new squad. But yeah, it's so many nerves because all of a sudden the media levels ramp up and all the other bits you have to focus on and you have to actually remember what got you there, what got you there in the first place and it's it's playing your game because you've got you've to show your team that you deserve to be there first and foremost for a player. And then it's about surrounding yourself with good people to help you with the leadership roles. Um, and then it's also enjoying it. I think you live back and, and stuff like that and look, I love captain in my country but... There was a lot of times where it was extremely stressful. It's always uh, the thing in life where you always look back and say, oh, if I knew what I knew now and back then I would do things differently. And yeah, maybe to a certain degree, but yeah, it was a a brilliant time for myself. Mm.
0: It's hard though, I suppose, because I can definitely um, relate to that, where you get so much stuck in the pressure rather than actually, oh, just enjoy the moment. Um, You mentioned nerves. How do you personally deal with Nerves? Is there any particular things that you do or coping mechanisms? Are you somebody that really feels those nerves?
1: Yeah, for me, I'm I'm a big believer in my abilities. Um, so for me, if I if I prepared well, I'm confident. That that could be from playing in front of eighty thousand people against against New Zealand or Wales or whoever it be, or reading in front of a thousand people. It's making sure you've done the work in the week so you're confident in your ability going there. And then, of course, look, it's it's not like saying. I'm not going to go out and play a guitar in front of a thousand people because I have no idea how to play guitar. As much as I prepare for that, that's never going to happen. But in in my fields, I feel that if I've trained well in the week, uh, the team's in a good place. I, I'm confident in our, our, ourselves and our approach. Whereas sometimes, if I've had a knock or something, I don't quite train till Thursday or Friday in the week. Then I actually get more nervous in my own ability, mm. and I get Did a slightly not quite right. Well, just that you like to do certain things in the week. You like to know the body's kind of how it should be. You've done enough handling or tackling or whatever. You feel confident in it. And I know you do it every single week of the year for 15 years, but for some reason you still just want a couple of reminders.
0: And I'm going to take you now to 2015 because that was something that was well documented. Is that something that you still look back on?
1: Yeah, look, the, the, the World Cup was, especially a home World Cup, has all of my emotions trapped into one. It was... One of the proudest moments of my of my life in terms of leading England out for the first game was at Twickenham, the crowd erupting, all that kind of stuff. You can't you can't ask for more than that. But of course, so it was a, the darkest time of, of my career, and potentially my life, um, in terms of a decision which I made, didn't get a plan, end up losing the game, go again the next week, lose a game, and all of a sudden you're out of a a home world cup. And yeah, look for me, I was hugely depressed. I remember kind of I went back to the room and just just held my wife and we just cried um, and there were tears everywhere and things happen and, and kind of things progress and there was um, there was probably three things I think that really kind of pulled me and helped me because I, I was I was blank behind the eyes for a long time after that and I was you know, I was good enough to go back to the club and play and I could get through things a little bit but I, I wasn't who I should be uh, I became a bit of a recluse. I didn't want to go out. Just felt like people were kind of judging you all the time. And I remember straight after the tournament that Sean Fitzpatrick emailed me and he said, nothing anyone can do or say is going to make you feel better. And he was right. But a sun will come up again. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might not even be next month. But it will come up again and you will be okay. Uh, and with that, sometimes you just need time it's fine to have your sulk and your mope and and all that but at some point you have to move forward Um, the other one my wife actually arranged for me and my best friends and a group of us to hire a house in the middle of nowhere in a new forest and we ate and we drank until we couldn't remember and it, it might not have been the best thing but for a weekend it allowed me to forget which was was hugely important and I mean, the the third one, we actually went to myself and Stuart, had to go to Buckingham Palace and meet the Queen with all the other captains and coaches and that. And it was an incredible honor to meet the Queen. And I'd never done that before. But you could feel the other teams pitying us. We'd just been knocked out. It, it was tough. We had to put a brave face on. And uh, Heineken made a South African coach at the time, as I was going out, I didn't want to be there, scoring out. And he just grabbed me by both shoulders, fixed South African accent, and just said, You're too strong to let this affect you. And I think for, for me, those two or those three show true leadership. I know my wife would always look after me, but the other two didn't really know me. They didn't have to look after me, but they could see I was hurting. And, and eventually you do, you do come through things. And look, it's a scar I'll always wear. It's a scar I'll, I'll always wear. It's not something I'm proud of, what happened, but it is part of, part of my history now. And it's about helping others now, not not make those mistakes and move forward. And, and now I've been through that. It's it's helping other players. Because I think until you felt the full backlash of of what I felt in terms of every every paper, front backs, blogs, random old pundits you had never heard of, and you try and avoid it, but you know it, it's getting through to you. Whether that's it's getting through to your family, your wife, your kids, and all that kind of stuff, it it, it is tough. Uh, and I'm so grateful for everyone who, who rallied around me because, yeah, I definitely cannot have got through it by myself.
0: It's interesting you say that because I was going to say, was it almost the aftermath of what happened rather than what actually happened? Because you're only human. Everyone makes mistakes. Every sports person, every person's made mistakes. But it, it's almost like yours are on show. And, you know, I, I can imagine it was the fact that, it, like you said, it was just everywhere. Was it the aftermath that really affected you and you said about being a leader how I don't know how do you prepare other players coming up for that
1: it's it's tough um yeah look the aftermath was was tough I mean playing making that season after the game you know the emotion because you're, you're a sportsman and and I think but that's where you want to be that's where you want to be testing of course you want the seasons to go right and you want to come out the other side but you want to you want to leave it all out there and you want to be on top of that taking those shots and, and kind of giving it you all because that's why we played the game you want to be in those big moments and for me at that moment I, I got that wrong and look the, the aftermath was tough but it's again the amount of people people like Alistair Cook reached out to me the two I'd spoken about of course Stuart Connor at the club uh, a number of these people kind of top people touch touch base and it, it did really help um, and now if I see unfortunately not in the England mix anymore but there were guys like Carl Sinclair who a couple of years ago went to Wales and he got kind of vilified after that for he made one wrong penalty or something. And it's just it's just being there for people. Don't rely on someone else to do it. Don't think, oh, his other friends will look after him or his wife or his his kids. Take responsibility, take ownership. And, and they, they've got to be kind of accepting towards yourself to say, do you want to go for a coffee? Do you want to have a chat? And and at least you pick yourself out there to, to try and help people as best as you can it's too easy to be like oh no someone else will pick up the pieces and and I'm not saying that you do that for everyone like around the world but the the people you kind of care about and know about
0: and I suppose that they all knew in a way what you're going through you mentioned Alistair Cook he was the England captain in cricket at the time somebody who I suppose can relate to the pressures of what it's like do you think it made a difference that they really understood
1: yeah, that, and it's exactly that. I mean, everyone was, was so nice and, and even teammates at the club and all my friends, family were like, oh, you'll be fine, it's fine, don't worry about it, all that kind of stuff. But but like I said, they they don't know what it's like and it's um, to have that much negative attention is, is tough. And t- like I said, until you've gone through it, you don't really appreciate it, I think. So when people like that, like I said, with Alistair there and Sean and uh, Heineke and a number of others who, who reached out to me, you know they've been through it, so they know things do pass and things do kind of move forward. But, yeah, they, they definitely made a big impact on me.
0: You said you know, that you've been to that dark, you know, depressed place, and I think I'm sure a lot of people will know that feeling. Was there anything, you know? I know you said about your support network, did you seek professional help? Was there anything particular that helped you get through those moments?
1: Uh, in all honesty, a lot of it was time um a lot of it was time just for a long time i I had nothing behind the eyes i was i was going through the motions i was i was i was good enough to do it but it was yeah and like walking the dog with a wife in the park helps little things trying to laugh but you're not quite laughing properly yet um and in in all honesty it, it took me a long time i remember one of my coaches after a couple of months was like, come on, mate, enough's enough. You just need to get out there. And Because he, he knew me. He knew well what I was about. And it wasn't actually until we played Wales. The first time in the Six Nations. So I was back in the England mix. I was playing for England. I wasn't captain, but I was back playing. It was, it was fantastic. We played Wales in the Six Nations following the team, which a uh, decision unfortunately went against me. And the first time back at Twickenham after all the emotions. First team, Wales, all the media speculation. Everything kind of being written around the week. And we played them and, and we won and we were doing a lap of honour, and I just broke down in tears. I had to get in the changing room. I just couldn't control it. And it was just all of these emotions just kind of kept flooding out. And it, it was tough. I remember hugging my wife and my mum as I kind of ran in, just kind of wanted to, to get off there. And it just, honestly, it all just flooded out of me. And then that summer, actually, we went to Australia, the other team we lost to. On the tour, no, no side had ever won a series down there. The second game was my 50th cap. Went out, got mad in the match. We won the series... And then Jason Leonard, England's most capped man, presented me with my 50th cap in changing room around all the guys and everyone kind of cheering and clapping. It just it almost was like okay, now you can move on a little bit. Um, but but like I said, that, those two moments for me were massive in terms of getting me there. But like I said, it, it's a scar that will always always be on me and I'll always wear it. But yeah, hopefully it, it does fade in a bit in time.
0: It's almost like that. That acceptance, it gave you that allowance to go, okay, right, I can I can move on with this now. When, you, when you're when talking to me about it now, what's it like? I mean, I'd love to know what you've learned from those periods and when you look back at yourself to, to who you are now.
1: Oh, hugely. The, the thickness it's given me to my skin, my shoulders have got got broader, definitely helped. Um, because, look, I, I think with, with social media, and like social media is a, a massive one for kind of health issues and, and mental health at the moment, that people will get... of good comments but that 3% of bad comments will be the one playing on their mind. whoever they could have and whoever it is and it's it's little things like that which I think now you just you brush it all off whereas I think back then it it would have probably not affected me little things like that but slightly bigger things and I think now I've I've been through that you do come out with the other side it's not a nice place to be Um, and you do need good people around you because you, you can't do it by yourself. But yeah, it's, it's definitely given me a thicker skin.
0: Now how much is that support network? Is that a really big part of if you wrote your life and, and your career and how you are where you are today? Yeah,
1: it is. Uh, look, no person's an island and we all need help, whether it's support at home from my wife, who's my rock, my mum and brothers and all that kind of stuff, to home friends, to teammates, to all that stuff. It's, it's just knowing that you're there for people. And people are willing to help you because, like I said, in those times for me, a lot of my friends and people didn't really know what it was about. Even a lot of my teammates had never experienced something like that. I remember Conor, my boss at the time, said, said to me before I let go away, enjoy the World Cup. But no, either way, you're going to come back a saint or you're going to be Guy Fawkes. And unfortunately, it was the latter. But he he was someone who was extremely positive and, and helped me massively get through it. But he had had his moments reaching out to people like Lawrence lot who have, who have had their moments as well. And it's sharing that kind of common ground that you can get through it. Do
0: you think, so? Do you th- I don't know, I wonder, do you think there should be more awareness about that vilification sometimes um, in terms of, you know, fans, including myself, watch you on the pitch? And I don't know, and sometimes I think there's a, forgetting maybe that's the right words for the fact that you're a
1: human being. No, I agree. I, I do think people forget people are human and they say what they like they kind of even my like my family they, they sit in the stands and watch and they get people slating people and you're like, you know you sat next to that guy's wife or something or or that and it's like but I think we with it you put yourself out there, don't you? You put yourself out there. And even even some of the players actually when they're watching football or something you're like oh my god what are you doing? I'm gonna play here and I'm like, mate, hey, do you know people probably say this about you? And he's like, oh, do they? And I'm like, yeah, I expect so. Um, but look, you again, with it, you just have to, I think you accept it. You, you're putting yourself out there. Look, we get to do something we love. I, I've I've always wanted to play professional sport. I've always wanted to play professional rugby. I've had in, incredible times as a kid playing against the best opposition in front of 80,000 people, the biggest stadiums. Like, that, that's why you do it. Yeah, look, like anything, years. There's a small negative to certain things, and, and if things don't go right, of, of course you're you're in that public eye, and people's opinions can get you a lot a lot quicker and a lot easier now with, with social media and various bits. And even without, I've I've left social media at various times in my career, and I know other players have just had to let agents do it for commercial reasons and all that kind of stuff. So like, I wouldn't change it. I, I, I've I've loved, and I still love love playing the game. It's it's what I've always wanted to do. And you just brush things off at the end of the day, you take it all with a pinch of salt.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love how you're smiling when we're discussing that. Um, I'd love to know more about as well, in terms of the coaches you've worked with, is there any, is there been any, I don't know, particular golden nuggets that they said, like Eddie Jones or Stuart Lancaster that you've taken on throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I've, I've worked with, like I said, I've been lucky enough. To, and I think you take stuff from every coach you work with. And I'm one of those people, I love talk to people who are at the top of their game, whether that's sport, music, business, whatever it be, because I feel you can always, always take something from them. I was sat down with Kevin Sinfield, huge rugby league legend, Leeds Rhino England, Great Britain. And he said, what are you doing when no one's watching? Because when you train at the club, when you train with England, it's easy to be professional. It's easy to eat the right food. It's easy to recover. It's easy to train hard, push yourself. But in the middle of January, when it's wet and miserable and you're a bit sore, your shoulders hanging on, all this kind of stuff, are you still eating well? Are you still getting in that ice bath for 10 minutes? Are you still doing your extras after training? And it's these little things that they make the difference. You see the good people. and, And when you get to those England levels and stuff, they're the people that I always have in, regardless of conditions, regardless of how they're feeling. Uh, and, and that's something which really stuck with me. Another one that that Sean Fitzpatrick told me, he said, always train as if you're number two trying to become number one. So always continue to push yourself. Always continue to strive after someone. Never get complacent with anything. Always want to improve little aspects of your game. And I, th- I think they're they're two quite important things for me. But I think all the coaches I've I've learned things from, whether it's man management, uh, tactics, to mindsets, to the way you play the game. I've been lucky enough to work with some pretty pretty incredible guys. Hmm.
0: They're really good points, actually. Do you think sometimes though we can get so obsessed, or, or yourself as a sports person, so obsessed with that achievement where yeah. it kind of rules rules and quantifies who you are?
1: Definitely, I, I want to win. And I still do. That's why I play the game. Look, people always say it's so fun. And yeah, we have a great time and we have have beers and stuff every now and then and have a good night out. But you want to play in front of 80,000 people. You want to be challenging for, for silverware and, and competitive because that's kind of my mentality. And Yeah, look, we, we do get drawn probably into it and you push yourself and you keep pushing the limits in areas of time. And, and that's when the good guys know when to take a break and know when to be like, actually... Guys, have today off. We pushed it enough. Go off, do go out for coffees, do that kind of focus on the other side of the game, uh, which again is that big side. It's our mental side, which is it's probably bigger than the physical one now because everyone's so big, everyone's physical, everyone's fast, everyone's strong, everyone's skillful. It's making the correct decisions under that pressure.
0: Do you think that's the edge then? The mental side of things, and do you think that's spoken enough about in the game and in sport in generally?
1: Yeah, we, we do. We, we have a lot of tactics, but. They come kind of hand in hand because it's one of those ones where if you're a bit fitter, then normally you can think correctly a little bit more. But yeah, they're definitely kind of a big aspect we have. Whether at England or Queen's, we have kind of psychologists, we have people dealing with our welfare off the pitch. So someone at Harlequin's sole responsibility is just to look at guys off the pitch, whether they want to do university degrees or work experience or basically helping them set up for later on in life. And these things are hugely important as well because you do need to have that if it's just rugby, 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 or whatever you're doing, you need an escape, whatever that be. Mine could be Minimus is taking a dog for a walk, or you just leave your phone at home and, and just go away. And some guys, it's playing with their kids. I know Richard McCaw flies helicopters. That, that was his thing, and that's obviously a much more extreme extreme version. But it's, it's having something where you can get away and, and just have a break.
0: I think leaving your phone is a really good thing i think i definitely
1: need to do that more yeah it's it's true though like on, on the phones like we with england we have a rule when at the dining table you can't use your phone so it encourages guys to talk uh, it's it's it sounds like a really little thing and it is but it's so important because you know it's like we're on our phones constantly and they've got tv on laptop on and we're looking at everyone else's life wondering what are they doing and it's it's hard. We're all addicted to social media. We're all addicted to everything else. So it's it's a little thing, but we found it actually made a, a big difference. So, yeah, like no physio, no phones in like their dining room or, or the physio room. So you actually talk to your physio and talk to the guy on the bed next to you and stuff like that. Yeah, these little things we found have helped.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a huge thing. I think I've even been strict with myself about waking up in the morning and the first thing not being... The fact that i 'm then scrolling through everything that 's going on social media, why is it such a bad bad habit, and it sets you up wrongly for the day, I think anyway, moving to you mentioned about welfare in future. What would your advice be to some young rugby players going through the ranks right now or or sports people in general?
1: I think there are no shortcuts. You don't get many players who... Look, there are some, and same in football and stuff, where there'll be a couple of 18, 19-year-olds who will bust on and now play for the next 10, 15 years at a top level. But a lot of players, myself included, is uh, there aren't that many shortcuts you have to put the work in. You have to work hard and you have, to be, you have to be resilient with it. Throughout my career, it's been up and down, up and down the whole way, whether that's... I remember my first my first four years my first year I broke my foot twice second year I broke my leg next year I did all my knee ligaments the year after I broke my hand and you're you're really thinking is this game for me before you've even got into it so yeah to, I think to, to be mentally tough to be kind of really resilient with it but also put the work in because no one else is going to put it in for you so yeah stick with things and work hard
0: but even just saying that your first five years was that just shows how incredibly resilient you are in being able to you know, get through those times. Um, what would you say to anybody struggling out there right now, um, that you know is in a dark place or is struggling um, with loss, you know, or the frustration of certain things like injuries, um, where they're not able to pursue the rate they would in whatever it is they're doing.
1: Injuries are. Injuries are probably, they're a tough point for us because when you're injured is, it's a lonely place. You often get depressed. You're training on your own. You have setbacks. I, just, I did my knee a couple of years ago. And then all of a sudden it's not improving. You get frustrated again and you're in a bit of a lull. All the guys are out training, laughing, all this kind of stuff. You're, you're on your own. It's, it's a tough place to be. But I think, I think as you do get older, you realize that, that these things happen. Injuries do happen. Unfortunately, if you're going to play a, a physical sport or a, Any sport where you're putting your body under your dress, you're stretching it as best you can to get the best out of it. So unfortunately, these things happen, but I don't think there's a a solid answer for it. I think when you struggle and when I have, it's important to have other things. And that's why when I talk about this welfare guy, so in particular, when guys are injured, they're, yes, they're coming into the club in the morning, they're doing their recovery and everything as best as they can, but then they're getting away for the afternoon, they're going off and doing work experience or they're, going home and playing with their kids or doing a university degree or qualifications or whatever and it's just making sure you have something else that unfortunately when things do go wrong you can bounce back and forth between them I think
0: yeah and what what would you say finally any coping mechanisms uh, you use in terms of mentally when you're feeling down or frustrated because I know throughout this you spoke so much about about your you know the relationship with your wife and your support network being so important
1: to you in terms of that? Yeah, and look, I'm, I'll i be honest, I'm not a massive one at, at sharing. If I'm struggling, I, I tend to tend to keep things in myself and, and, and that's not right in itself. I know I have to work on that and have to improve because as much as I, I'm there for people, people are there for me as well. And with that, you have to also be willing to share. If someone's saying, oh, let's go for a coffee, let's have a chat, they can only do so much. If you're not willing to accept the help or accept their... And they, they probably don't want to sit down and tell you their the life choice, whatever. They just want to have a chat and see how you are and go for a coffee. And I, I think that's the thing. Pick yourself out there. And if you think your, your friend or your mate is struggling, give them a phone call because it, it doesn't take long. Um, and even if you're struggling as well, don't, don't rely on other people. Don't wait for someone else to do it because we don't always know people who are struggling. It's, it's sometimes very hard to see. So if you think you are or think you're down, just drop someone a text, drop someone a message and I'm sure you'll be pretty amazed with the responses you get.
0: Yeah, it's really good advice, actually, that it's not always that obvious and we might think that we're showing it, but actually we're not if, unless we vocalise it. Thank you so much. You've been amazing and wonderful to speak to. Thank you very much yeah thanks so much i hope you all enjoyed listening uh thanks to sport your mind charity for their support with this as well and remember there are people out there as chris mentioned uh, drop someone a text or there are organizations as well that can help like the samaritans which are on 116 123 and the nhs helpline is 111 both of them are available 24 7 thanks so much for listening take care and we'll speak again soon